In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I've always been someone who thinks a lot about the future, but not in any sort of a responsible way. Not like saving for a rainy day or trying hard in school, nothing like that. I've always just sort of daydreamed about what things will look like me in the future. Where will I live? Who will I marry? What will my house look like? What will my job look like? And of course, my all-time favorite, what will people think about me? This last one usually creeps in in some sort of a daydream in which I create a new identity for myself through some interesting new hobby that I'll master in the future. You can imagine how excited someone like me was when my brother gave me the password that he had purchased for the master class. Masterclass is an online catalog of classes that you can take, these videos, with some of the best chefs and artists and writers and comedians and actors, you name it, in the world. With access to all of this, I thought the potential for my future self was now something that was off the charts. A few months ago, I watched a class by Aaron Franklin. He's the most famous barbecue pitmaster in Austin, Texas. Hours and hours of videos talking about wood and smoke, about pulled pork and brisket. I couldn't get enough of it. I watched it all. When I finished it, I spent days researching the very best smokers to buy online. Thousands and thousands of dollars, big ones that would take up our entire driveway. But that would be okay because in my mind, this is who I am now. Or it's who I will be. I'm going to be the guy who makes barbecue to impress all of his friends at every single function. This is who I am now. But then, of course, an Amazon package arrived with a book that I ordered about how to write poetry. And, of course, I haven't thought about barbecue once since then. And I haven't written a single poem yet either. Well, uh, making a self-deprecating joke in an empty church is actually just kind of depressing, so I'm sorry about that. Um, Our identity at times can feel like it's a work in progress. We place our hope in the future by placing it on a future version of ourselves that's a lot more appealing than what stands before you today. But there are also times when we consider the future with a sense of helplessness or worry. Maybe you're not sure that you can pull off the transformation that you're hoping for, or maybe the present problem that's making you anxious about the future is simply far greater than you yourself can tackle on your own. Some know what I'm talking about in theory, and unfortunately, what I'm talking about specifically. These past few months have caused some to worry about what the future might look like. Will we ever return to schools again, to church, to normalcy? In the past few weeks in our country and the horrific murder of George Floyd have shown the world that for some of us, what they're anxiously awaiting is a future that is anything but what they've come to experience as normal. Into this scene, into this mess, into this world, crashes in the gospel message for us all to hear afresh today, to hear loud and clear. In the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, 
is all gospel. Paul tells us that we've been justified, that we've been made worthy of love and claimed as Christ's own forever, not by what we've done or what the world has become, but by what Jesus Christ has done himself. We've been given the promise that divine grace has been given to us when we least deserved it. And the promise that our future is one that he will determine and gift to us through his mercy. While preparing the sermon, I did a simple Google search for quotes about the future. It's a nice little trick that preachers do sometimes to hopefully pick up some sort of gem that we can insert into our own writing. But more often than not, what you'll find is a lot of quotes saying the opposite of what you're trying to say. What I saw online about the future in almost every quote I read was something like this, something like what Gandhi said when he said, the future depends on what you do today. Or essentially, the future is all up to you. Quotes like this have undoubtedly inspired millions of people over the years to take action and responsibility for their own lives and the well-being of their own communities And in a time like the present moment when the horrible truths of individual and institutional racism have been painfully and loudly highlighted, this push, this law to take action can in some cases move us to do just that. But not always, and it doesn't always last. Many of us are hungry for action. We want to fix things, to change things, and we want to do it today, right now. We want to stop the suffering of others. We want to see some justice. But sadly, what we learn time after time is that we can't save ourselves. We can't will the future that we want into existence. The future isn't up to us, despite what we tell ourselves. We want to do something, but we realize that we aren't actually able to do much at all about the things that make us anxious, or maybe we're actually part of the problem more than we're the solution. We feel helpless to stop a spreading virus, and whether we speak out or not, we recognize that we're complicit in the sin of racism. It's a feeling that isn't fun, becoming aware of this truth that we can't snap our fingers and fix this that we aren't God. In fact, we're all pretty ungodly, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans. So what if this year that we're hoping to soon forget or get past is actually a year in which we remember a simple truth about ourselves and about God? For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Paul writes. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us, and that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. This is it. It's the whole gospel in a nutshell. In the face of an unknown future, Jesus Christ died for us. In the face of a bleak and daunting tomorrow, the promise of divine grace breaks in and it grabs a hold of us. 
Jesus' death and resurrection is the thing that has secured our futures and gives us hope not only for the future, but also for today. Because as people whose identity and future doesn't rely on our social or economic status or how interesting our hobbies are or even on the color of our skin, because we've received the promise of grace and the promise of a future, we're freed to respond with love. Fear not, because I am and I always will be with you, Jesus tells us. The promise of grace and the promise of a future is the only true and hopeful source of change. It's the only thing powerful enough to move us to do the uncomfortable and scary thing, to listen to one another and above all else, including our own self-interest, to love one another to walk freely into the good works that Christ has prepared for us. Our hope for the future can't ultimately be a hope in ourselves, but instead it's a hope in Jesus Christ and his promise to us all. And while we were still sinners, while our lives and the world we live in was in turmoil, Jesus died for the ungodly. Theologian Robert Jensen once said something like this, when an individual, a body, or a community, when it's dead, it no longer has a future. But when an individual, a body, or a community is alive, it's something that has a future. This may seem like a simple or an obvious observation, but it was made with Jesus' own death and resurrection in mind. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for us all on the cross and the resurrection of his body and ascension into heaven, we as Christians who have been baptized into his death and resurrection have been given the assurance that we too have a future. No matter what comes at the end of any uncertain time, be it the death of relationships, the death of financial security, the death of the status quo, perhaps, or the death of our very bodies, we have a future with Jesus. We have a future that's more beautiful than we could ever imagine. When I was in seminary, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry came to speak to a group of us, and he was asked what he thought the most important thing about church is. Bishop Curry said, unsurprisingly, that he thought the grace of the gospel message was best expressed through the church's hospitality in communion. And he told us this story about his parents going to church in his hometown of Buffalo, New York, before he was born. Curry's mother brought his father with her to an Episcopal church one day. He was Baptist and had never been to an Episcopal church before, so he anxiously sat in a back pew with his wife the two of them, an African-American couple sitting in a mostly white church. And when it came time for communion, <clears throat> Curry's mother went forward, but his father stayed in his seat, skeptically watching the strange ritual unfolding before his eyes. <clears throat> but what he saw was something that forever changed him. It changed the way that he thought about his own future. 
And it certainly altered the future of his unborn son, Michael. What he saw was men, women, and children, black and white, kneeling together, side by side, hands open in unison to receive the promise of grace in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The communion table, that thing that so many of us miss so desperately in this age of quarantine, that's the symbol of healing, of community. It's the foretaste of the heavenly banquet when all of us, beautiful and yet ungodly and broken children, will kneel together in unison and receive the promise of divine grace. Not one of us is God, but we're all in need of God. And God has come and died and risen again for all of us. You have a future. It may not be a known future, but it's one that's been promised to you by a God who is known in the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.